Welcome to the Queer XLP Podcast. We are two speech-language pathologists who identify with the LGBT plus community. On each episode, we'll highlight relevant queer issues and stories from our field. The Queer SLP Podcast's mission is to provide informative and pertinent content from proud and chatty SLPs. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Queer SLP Podcast. Here we are, number four. Yes, and again, I'm Hector and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie, my pronouns are she, her. You're here for another proud professional episode. We just wrapped up our last one last week where we talked a little bit about me. And this week, Mm -hmm. we get to cover who? Me! Yes! We get to cover Natalie White. But before we start, Natalie is starting a new job. I am. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I am going to start a part-time job in a week and a half. Mm -hmm. It is a outpatient pediatric clinic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I used to work at a clinic in Seattle, and they were bought by another company in the time that I was working in the school district. So it's a different company, but it's the same people that I worked with six years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, but a different site. So I won't be in the Seattle clinic. I'll be in a different one. But yeah, so that's going to be my point five. And then when in a month or so... And that's all in person, correct? That's all, all in person. I mean, I don't know... They haven't given me the specifics on how the COVID-style mm-hmm. treatment is going to be. I think it's going to probably be a distance. Right. But yeah, and then in a month or so, I am going to be contracting with a company doing teletherapy. All sorts of new things. <sighs> so much new things, but... You know, if you've ever been to the Seattle area, you probably know that the traffic is really bad. And I recently moved outside of the city limits. And I was trying to commute into the city to keep my job with um, with our school district. Mm-hmm. But I was finding the commute to be untenable. Yeah. So I decided that I, after this current school year, that I would find something else with a shorter commute. And that's what I went out and did. Onward and upward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So how are you since we last talked? I'm good. I'm not going to lie. If you have already listened to last week's Proud Professional episode, that was that was tough to, to mm-hmm. go through. Reliving that, being in that vulnerable space again. But I think it's just a testament to the fact that the queer community or any queer professional has to kind of go back to these moments and relive them every single day at times, depending on your situation. Yeah, well, and I think that for those who are maybe newer to the profession, maybe you're a student or considering the profession of speech-language pathology, it may be encouraging to know that you're not alone. Right. And that, that your experiences as a as a queer person are experienced by other people. And again, that visibility is huge. We got to learn last week about what that meant to me as a proud professional. Mm-hmm. And this week we get to start learning a little bit more about you. So why don't we get to that? Okay. All right. So Natalie, I'm going to start with my first question. Okay. Tell us your pronouns. And then of course, tell us how you identify within the LGBTQ plus community. Okay. My pronouns are she, her, and I identify as a lesbian. I also identify as femme. Mm -hmm. Some other people might say I am cis. Yeah. 
and I guess both apply. Can you give us a little bit of definition? Because I don't even know the difference between femme and, and being cis. What is What do you mean by that? To me, someone who is cis, is, they identified with the gender that they're assigned at birth. Whereas femme is more maybe of a style. Gotcha. Right? So very feminine in my presentation. Mm-hmm. And I remember early on when we started talking about doing this podcast, you had asked me if I felt like I needed to look more feminine for my career. Mm-hmm. Did I feel like I had to look a certain way as a speech language pathologist? Mm-hmm. And after thinking about it for a while, I thought, no, quite the opposite. I feel like I've had more pressure in the past from the queer community to look more stereotypically queer. Mm-hmm. I think especially when I was younger. Quote, butch. Yeah, more butch, more androgynous. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when I was younger, in my early 20s, the L word was very popular. Mm-hmm. And that kind of willowy, very unvoluptuous kind of look. I, I was not attracted to that mm-hmm. sort of... Um, like a waif? Is that what you yeah, would describe it? Like Kate waif. Moss? <laughs> yeah. Hippie Kate Moss, maybe? But butcher. Um, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so I feel like in the past, I've felt more pressure actually from the queer community to mm. look more like that than I have Interesting. L- felt pressure to look more feminine from the SLP community. Okay. So you get to identify as femme and then c- cis female on top of that or just yeah. both? One I or think the so. Other? Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about that, we have our bases covered. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit more about your experience growing up. I want to know more about what it was like when you first learned about your identity as a person within the queer community. And then I want to know if Natalie White in this day and age could go back in time to the Natalie that was first identifying her sexual orientation. What's something that you would say to her during that Okay. period? <laughs> So I'll start with um, my upbringing. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a small town. Small town. <laughs> I grew up in a small town in upstate New York by the name of Owego. And it's a very cute, very quaint, small town. It is... Do you know uh, the population size? I think the village itself might have... Village. Yeah. There's a town and a village. I'm not sure about the village, actually. The town, I think, is probably around 10,000. Okay. And growing up, I think it was very similar maybe to you where there weren't really gay role models. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can remember hearing people talk about in in a negative light about gay people. Well, you were right in the midst of the HIV AIDS crisis, right? Yes. And I, I remember people talking about that like it was something that was associated with a terrible lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and a death sentence. Yes. Well, and back then it was yeah. a death sentence. Yeah. I can remember the first time that I saw gay people and knew it. Where uh, was this? <laughs> this was not in my hometown. Yeah. But I think I might have been in seventh grade. Okay. And, you know, when you talk about the AIDS crisis, that's actually what brought this up in my mind. My science class went on a field trip to Washington, D.C. To, I think we were going to the Smithsonian. And quite honestly, I can't remember why we were there. (laughs) Was it eighth grade? Seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, I think most. I did that in my eighth grade year, too. You (laughs) You go to D.C. and see stuff. Yeah. But what I do remember so very clearly, and I don't think that my my teachers knew that this was happening, but we were in D.C. during their Pride weekend. (laughs) 
And so I think this is like 1991 or two, like early 90s. Mm -hmm. And driving in to go to the Smithsonian and there's all these rainbow flags and pink triangle flags. And I'm looking at the bus window and I'm like, what is this? We get off the bus and we're doing our sciencey thing. But all along the National Mall, there was the AIDS quilt. Oh, wow. I got to see the AIDS quilt in person. Wow. That was so amazing. And I don't, at the time, I didn't really know what I was looking right. at. Right. But now I can look back and be like, that's amazing yeah. that I got to see that in person. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we should do an episode sometime just, just about the AIDS crisis and what it meant to our community because it, it was devastating. But I think one of the most impressionable things, like last our last episode, you talked about how Matthew Shepard was so instrumental in your early gayness. Yeah. And this is before I was out or had the self-awareness to know that I was gay. But I remember this very clearly, that there were two men walking down the sidewalk holding hands. Yeah. And a couple of boys in my class started mocking them. And the guys holding hands just sort of were like, whatever, you stupid kids, and kept walking. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't get why they think that's a bad thing. You know, to me, it looked beautiful. That it just, that was the first time that I had seen gay people in person and knew it. You know, that's not to say that there weren't people in my town that were gay, but if they were, they did not advertise. Was that also the first observation of like homophobia as well for you in person? Mm. Or did you experience that growing up as well? Or see it? That was the first overt. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that in in the town that I grew up in, people just didn't talk about it. You know, my parents were very, kind of very liberal people in a conservative town. Oh, So I I didn't really hear a lot of negative talk about it growing up, which I'm so grateful for. Yeah, that's huge. Not that it wasn't difficult for my family when I came out, because it was, but it could have been much worse. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that answers your question yeah, about it totally my does. background. Right. I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, my mom asked me if I was a lesbian and I said no. Like she Oh, she knew. She knew. My mom is an awesome lady, just so you all know. So hi mom, I know you're listening. Hi. To, uh, yeah, she asked me outright and I was not self-aware enough at that time hmm. to know that that's what I was. So Had my, you dated before then? I, I tried dating boys a little bit, yeah, but it never really went very far. Yeah. I just didn't feel comfortable. And right. at the time I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm just a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe just... As, I got priorities. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I'm thinking about schooling. I'm thinking about, you know, needing to get into college and all that stuff. So I came out when I was 20. Mm-hmm. I was a junior in college. Yeah. And... I fell in love for the first time. The girl. And like a classmate or a professor? No. Oh. <laughs> she was she was a, f- a friend of a friend. Okay. And she just, she kissed me. Oh, what? <laughs> right out the blue? Yeah, pretty okay. much. Okay. Pretty much. And I think what's unusual in my case that maybe not a lot of people do is that I came out pretty much immediately. Like right after she kissed you? Yeah, basically. I told everybody. <laughs> By the way, I'm a lesbian. Like, hey, I'm dating a girl. I just got kissed. Yeah. I was just so excited. And to me, it was like a sudden load off my shoulders that I didn't even know was there. Right, right. Affirmation, right? Yeah. And it's like when when you grow up and it's not even talked about, 
Mm-hmm. You don't even really think of it as much of an option. And so I just like burst out of that closet that I never really was in as right. far as I can tell. Like I can look back to my high school years and realize now that, you know, I had crushes on girls right. and all those things. But I just wasn't self-aware enough at that time to really know that that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. Was there another question? question? Can you can you repeat it? I forget. If Natalie of today could go back to that Natalie on the bus going to DC, (laughs) seeing that AIDS quilt, what what's some knowledge or wisdom that you would pass on to tell her about how things would turn out? I think I would say your instincts are correct. There is nothing wrong with that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the the big thing that 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 happened with me that day was that I did not see the badness Mm. that other kids around me were seeing. All Mm. I saw was something beautiful and lovely and it was love. Yeah. And so I guess I would say to my younger self, you're right. And don't let anyone tell you any different. Love is beautiful. Love is love. It's never ugly. Yeah. Love is, is never ugly. I love that. That, my therapist asked me that same question. That's why I asked it. Mm-hmm. And I had the similar answer, which is interesting. I wonder if most gay or L- queer people would say that my answer was, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Whatever you think or whatever other people are telling you, there's nothing wrong with you. So interesting to see that we have similar-ish um, answers. Mm-hmm. So again, this is the Queer SLP podcast. We're talking about being professionals but being queer professionals too. So tell me how you ended up choosing the field that we are currently in, which is speech language pathology. Well, when I was in high school, I wanted to be an opera singer. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I had big dreams and I, I... Did you have all the training too? Uh, I started taking singing lessons when I was in my early teens, maybe okay. 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I loved singing and I loved performing. I did a little bit of musical theater. A little Charlotte Church action here. Oh, <laughs> um, my my parents always encouraged me to do music. I but, love that. Yeah. But when I when I said that I wanted to do it for a profession, my parents, especially my dad, freaked out. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "You won't be able to make a living. Right? You'll always struggle." So I made a little deal with them and I said, okay, I'll pick something else and I'll try it out. But if I don't like it, I am going to switch my major to music and I don't want to hear anything about it. Oh, wow. And they were like, okay. And you chose? Chose speech language pathology. (laughs) Out of all the things? Out of all the things. So I chose it because when you were in high school, did you take those aptitude tests that like told you what you might be good at as a career? Okay. No, so many people do though, but I didn't. So, um, or I didn't pay attention. (laughs) So I took one of those, uh, one of those tests, and it said speech language pathologist. And it said speech language pathologist, huh? As a career, and so I was like, okay, the school that I wanted to go to, which was um, State University of New York at Fredonia, Mm -hmm. which is um, about an hour south of Buffalo, they had a great music program, and so I wanted to go there for the music program, and they also had a speech pathology (laughs) program. So I thought, oh, that okay. is lucky because we no. don't have many speech language pathology grad programs across the nation. Like, yeah, yeah. that's that's huge. So, yeah. So I went to I went to SUNY Fredonia and I ended up really enjoying my coursework in speech pathology. I found mm-hmm. it really interesting. I loved learning about IPA. 
Not the beer, not species, <laughs> yeah. but International Phonetic Alphabet. I loved phonetics. Um, I, loved, I thought you would like voice. I loved voice. Oh, okay, I was right. Um, <laughs> I, I loved voice. I participated in some research projects that a professor was doing in voice, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I ended up keeping that major and minoring in music. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up in this field. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So for me, it wasn't my first choice. But for you, I mean, it was your second choice. It was your first major that you actually picked. Yes. So knowing that, Mm -hmm. and you weren't quite out when you picked it. No. So do you feel subconsciously being a lesbian had any impact on your choice? Or do you feel any of that is related? No. No, not at all. No, not at all. Oh, well, I mean, not everyone does. Let me ask you this. Okay. Other lesbians in the field, Mm -hmm. do you know any that have been influenced like that? Being a lesbian made them feel comfortable or confident in going into the field of speech-language pathology. None that I know of. Mm -hmm. I would say for gay males, yes. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, any early childhood. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get a lot of gay men that are nurturers. There's just something like, oh, you know, it's cool. Like, you, you know you can do it. So continuing on, speaking about work and everything... Are you out at work? I am. And okay, so what was your process? And have you ever not been out of work? And what does it feel like when you do come out? Well, it's always terrifying. Yeah. I almost always am out. Yeah. I I think I have a little bit of privilege because I am cisgendered. Mm-hmm. That if I don't feel comfortable or safe in a situation, I can avoid the topic altogether and mm-hmm. not come out if I have a, a, a student or a coworker who I just don't feel safe with. Mm-hmm. But I would say that that's 1% or less of my situation. Do you wait for them to ask? Mm, no. No. I have. Do you want to hear a funny coming out story? Always. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so... I worked in a clinic. Let's see. They hired me initially to do a maternity leave. Mm-hmm. And then just as that clinician was coming back, they had another maternity leave. So I did the second maternity leave. And as I was in the second maternity leave, another SLP in our clinic got pregnant. Hmm. And my boss at the time said to me, oh, there's something in the water. Like people in this <laughs> clinic keep getting pregnant. And I kind of looked at her and I wasn't out yet. I had been there like a few months and I said, well, you don't have to worry about me. And she's like, well, there could be an accident. And I said, no, there really couldn't. (laughs) And she pauses and she looks at me and she goes, oh, (laughs) it was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. And yes, that's my funny coming out story. But usually coming out, I just sort of slip it in. Mm hmm. I'll mention my partner or something to that effect. Using the vocabulary, my partner, like my well, girlfriend I, or well, fiance. When I was married, I would say my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, then I got divorced. And so now I'll say either, well, okay, another story. <laughs> Do you want another coming out story? Always, again. Okay, so not too long ago, I was in the staff room of a school building I worked in. And I was talking to the counselor 
we were just kind of chatting about our weekend and I said oh my fiance and I did this this and this and she's like oh what's his name and I said oh well actually it's her her name's Andrea Mm -hmm. and oh my gosh this poor counselor got all flustered and was just like oh I'm so sorry I shouldn't assume anything and and all this and so I came home and I told Andrea this story and She's like, oh, well, from now on, you should just say pre-wife. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's our little joke. Oh, so that's where pre-wife came from. Yes, that's okay. where pre-wife came from. Do you get offended when people assume incorrectly? Yes. Okay. Where was I going with that? I think there was something good coming there. Mm-hmm. You, do you get offended? Yes. Um, you know where I get the most offended, though? Where? Is when queer people assume I am straight. Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. And I, you know, I think that anyone who presents as, as femme probably knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There's the kind of like the lesbian nod. Do gay men do that? Like there's sort of like this little acknowledgement. If you're walking down the street, there's sort of like a, hey... I see you. I see that. Well, I know it's, I don't know if it's like a nod as in like camaraderie or if I'm checking you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it Okay. So I hear what you're saying. So it sounds like by presenting as cis or femme, you, you get offended that someone would assume that you're not a lesbian. Right. That's so interesting because that's the opposite in the gay community because we have this, obsession with masculinity Mm -hmm. and presenting as heterosexual there's definitely some there's an opposite like it's a lot of people find it very attractive that you know there's that saying mask for mask there's Mm -hmm. there's a lot of prejudice toward being remotely anything femme or towards Mm -hmm. um that end of the spectrum and so yeah yeah I just remember when I would, like, for example, be walking down the street with my wife, mm-hmm. my ex-wife, and she she was very uh, masculine looking, mm-hmm. very obviously, you know, quote, lesbian. Right. I would see other, we would walk past women and they would just sort of, there would be this nod of acknowledgement, like, hey. Toward her. Toward her. Mm-hmm. But if I was walking by myself and... I passed women. I never got that kind of acknowledgement. And I guess that goes back to what I was saying about feeling pressure to look more, quote, lesbian, Mm -hmm. because I wanted to be acknowledged by my community. Right. But when people look at me, they see they they assume a straight person. Right, right. And that that's very frustrating when you want to be a part of your community. Right. And when I was younger, I tried to fit in and I I changed my style of dress and my hair and like all these things to try and fit in. But it just felt wrong. Right. So, yeah. Hard to be your authentic self Mm -hmm. when everyone else is trying to figure out who they are as well. You know? Yeah. So there is no blueprint on how to be a lesbian. No. (laughs) I mean, you have to be true to yourself. And I think that it it took a while for me to come to that point where I was like, I am just going, I'm going to dress how I want to dress. I'm going to be who I want to be Mm -hmm. and people can make assumptions about me and that just can't matter to me anymore Mm -hmm. and so i just i am who i am and i'm comfortable with that are you comfortable at work showing that you have a partner for example one of the things that i am so envious about and this is something else that i need to unpack when people have pictures of their spouses or their families on their desks or on their clipboards i get so envious of that Because one, 
I don't have that currently, but two, um, there's fear. Like even if I did have it, there is a bit of me that while I am a proud professional and proud to be gay, there is that piece of me. And maybe that's from my past and my traumatic experiences in the schools, but I don't know if I would feel comfortable putting up a picture of me and my partner, husband, boyfriend, you know, what about you? I always have a picture up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yep. And I, and I display it prominently. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even notice it's there, but it, it can become a topic of conversation. And mm-hmm. I've had kids ask me, who's that? And I've had parents ask me, who's that? And right. colleagues ask me. That is an opportunity for me to come out. Yeah. <laughs> and be like, oh, yeah, that's my that's my person. Yeah. You know, usually if a kid asks, I'll say, oh, well, that's my family. Right. And 95% of the time, kids are like, all right. Yeah. Then that's that. You right. Know, it's completely normal to them to have that. Mm-hmm. And then there's those, those few kids, like we talked about last time, that are like, oh. Yeah. And usually my response to that is, well, can we still be friends? I mean, does that change that we've been friends all this time? Right. You know, most of those kids will be like, oh, yeah, we can still be friends. You know, so I see that they have some some biases that have been taught to them, but they're not so ingrained in most kids that they can't interact with me. Do you get a sense of feeling that the LGBTQ plus community often in the professional setting has to sort of martyr themselves to be visible in the professional world? Do you know what I'm saying? No, I don't. So like when I think about martyrdom, I think about like, you kind of had to put yourself out there regardless of whether or not you know how it's going to end. And even if it is, quote, self-sacrifice, like, do you feel like there's a pressure for us to have to do that? At this point in time, yes, I do. I think it really sucks that we have to. In a perfect world, I think that we wouldn't have to. But as at the point in time that we, we are in, I think we still need to be visible and open ourselves and take a risk that straight people don't have to take. It is a risk, which brings me to my next question and okay. the importance of allyship. Allyship looks different to every single person and in different fields, it looks different as well. So Natalie, for you, what do you consider allyship in our field? I think an ally is a person who is always open to learning, Mm -hmm. who can self-reflect and be okay with their mistakes, can say, oh, hey, what I just said or did was wrong and I I can change that. Right. right. Someone who, who has the comfort in themselves to be able to change. None of us are perfect. None. Yeah. And we all make mistakes. And I think it's what you do with that afterwards. I think that an ally is someone who will stand up to others when they say something disparaging about another group. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's being an ally for any marginalized group. Right. You're not going to allow somebody to speak negatively Right. You often hear that. That's just the way they are. Or that's just how things are. Mm -hmm. And that's not the actual case. (laughs) We've just accepted that to be. Can I can I tell you a story, an ally story? Yes. Okay. We love a good ally. Okay. So um, I feel like one of my greatest allies is my mom. Mm -hmm. Hi again, mom. Hi, mom. So my mother and I had a very difficult start when I came out. Which is very interesting because she knew I was gay before anyone else knew that I was gay. But when I came out, she really struggled with it. 
she would call me on the phone and ask me questions that made me a little uncomfortable, like, oh, why can't you just be friends with girls? This male friend, he's single. Why don't you date him? Right. And it, my, I have never doubted in my mind that my mother loves me. Mm-hmm. Never, ever once. But at that point, it was very difficult for me to have any kind of relationship with mm-hmm. my mom. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a few years, and I'm living in Seattle, and my mom wants to come visit me. She's in New York still. She's in New York still. Okay. She still lives in my hometown. So I I was nervous about it because we had this rocky relationship for a few years. But I said, okay. And she came out to see me. And it just so happened that she came out to see me during Pride. I think this was Pride of 2004. I decided to take a leap of faith and I brought my mom to Pride. Mm-hmm. We're walking around and looking at things and I'm not really sure how she's reacting. We happened to walk by the P-Flag booth. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that don't know, PFLAG is Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Mm -hmm. This is if you go to a Pride celebration and someone offers you a mom hug or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, Because a lot of people in the LGBT community are rejected by their families. And so PFLAG is there to support those people and also to support parents who have queer children. So we go to the PFLAG booth. And we're looking and my mom starts talking to this other mom. They seem to become friends really quickly. They go and sit in some chairs and they're talking. And so eventually I wander off because I'm getting like bored. So I went off and I looked at the festivities and then I would come back and they were still talking and then I would leave and they were back and they would still be talking. And my mom talked to this other mom for I don't know how long, a couple hours at least. Eventually they were done. And I still to this day do not know what they talked about. Mm -hmm. But a couple weeks after she left, my mom calls me on the phone and she's like, I have to tell you something. And I was like, okay. And she says, I was at work and this other person made a gay joke that was really offensive. And I told her, you can't say that. That's offensive to gay people. (laughs) And it blew me away. Yeah. It blew me away. And that's what I mean by someone who can change. Yeah. And can stand up. Even when you're not there. Yeah. Even when, like like you were saying. Yeah. Even when that person's not there. It was like a light switch. My Mm. mom became a different person. She wouldn't have become that different person had she not been open to it. And so that's that's my ally story. You know, and my to this day, my mom is amazing ally. Pride month is huge for you because come full circle with your mom, we think about your eighth grade trip or seventh right? grade trip yes. you first were there exposed and now your relationship with your mom, it's Pride's a very important month for you, it sounds like, it, <laughs> historically. You know I, I never made that connection, but yes, I guess it, it was, yeah. it is. It continues to be. That's why it's important, right? Yeah, it, it is important. Yeah, it, it's not just a party. It's not a huge circuit party for gay people to go to and parades it's it can be transformative it is transformative for those who are open to it who are starting their journey who are in the midst of their journey and anywhere in between or after that so thinking about allyship we kind of talked a little bit more about what that looks like in your private life but in your professional life what does being an ally look like to you what are some things they should do and what are some things they shouldn't do I don't know if that's if it's that different to be honest with you. Yeah. I 
I think it really is about that cultural humility Mm -hmm. and standing up for what's right, even if it doesn't impact you personally to be able to stand up and say, hey, that's that's not right. And also, I think that an ally is someone who will be aware enough of current events to understand that that person may be affected. You know, so I think being aware enough that certain events may impact that person in a different way. Right. So if you hear about something happening that may be upsetting to them to check in with them. We often talk a lot about being trauma informed when it comes to our clients and customers or whoever you work with. I think being trauma informed with our coworkers is something that we as people on this planet could benefit from. Um, and I think that's a really good point right. of being aware of what's going all around. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked a lot about allyship. We covered that. And we've talked a little bit about how you've experienced um, coming out in the workplace. But Mm -hmm. as a result of that experience, maybe some otherwise from comments, have you experienced aggressions or microaggressions from coworkers, parents, students, customers, you name it? Like, have you experienced that in the workplace? I have, yes. Yeah. Do you Um, feel comfortable telling us about any of them? I am comfortable telling you. Okay. Going back to the clinic that I mentioned, there was this woman working there. She was administrative assistant. So she did the scheduling and would check patients in. And when I first started working there, I didn't really understand. Like she wouldn't say hello to me. She wouldn't make conversation with me. There were other people in the office that she would be friendly to and talk to. And she would go out of her way to tell my boss about mistakes that I made. Like document them? She she just tattle. It was tattling. And, you know, I'm human. I would make mistakes. Sometimes I, you know, my bus would be late and I would be late or. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Things like that. And I never really knew why she didn't like me. And then this person was moving and she was training her replacement. And when I was out of earshot, she told this person that I was a lesbian and was saying it in a way that communicated disgust. Yeah. Yeah. What she didn't know was that this person she was training was bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, as soon as she left, moved away, this person told me what she had, this person had said. That explained a lot to me. Fortunately, I had a boss who didn't really buy into that BS. Do you think that, I will just say it, we are privileged to live in this part of the country Uh um, and that even with the aggressions and microaggressions that we personally face, I can only imagine what other professionals face in in different parts of the country that are less open. Yeah, uh, and I I would love to talk to somebody who is from, from a more rural area. Right, shout out to those that we are looking for more people to interview for our podcast. Yes. So... Holla, if you live in a rural area, slide into those DMs. Do you think, I mean, I think the answer we all know is that there's not enough visibility. No. So in your mind, is there a marker for enough visibility? Is there a benchmark to go for? I think the benchmark is when we don't have to be visible anymore, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I think the benchmark is when we don't have to come out Right. Then maybe we've reached our benchmark. I don't know if we'll ever get there. Not to be a Debbie Downer because I tend to be a positive person and try to look for the bright side in things. But yeah, I mean, if if we get to the point where a family is just a family and you can just be yourself and you don't have to come out Mm -hmm. on a constant basis, then maybe we've reached 
that right when it just seems normal right because it is normal being queer being non-binary being trans right. all those things is normal do you have any queer role models i do i have queer slp role model <gasps> I'm not going to use his name because I haven't asked permission. I had a professor in grad school. Mm -hmm. I went to MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was the first day of class. He came out to my entire class. And this was 2001, (laughs) I think. And I mean, he just laid it all out. Yeah. He was very encouraging. And yeah, he, I mean, he was, when you talk about being open, he exemplified that. That's so awesome. So you know who you are. Thank you. I don't know you, but I love you. (laughs) That's so awesome. So I think that's about all the time we have. Do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? Just to reiterate that you, you know, you're a beautiful person. Oh, queer SLP out there. (laughs) Be proud. Maybe that's a little bit of a cliche, but. Well, pride matters to you. Pride matters to me. (laughs) Be proud and know that you're supported. Yeah. You are not alone. I know that sometimes it might feel like that. We as SLPs tend to be the only SLP in our building. You right. may you may be the only queer p- person in your building or in your setting. This can be a very lonely profession. Mm-hmm. I just want to say to you that you are not alone. That's great. Yeah. I love that. All right. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for joining us for this fourth episode and our second Proud Professional session. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and like us on Instagram and Facebook at The Queer SLP. And we also have a website, thequeerslp.com. Mm-hmm. And you know, be sure to tell your friends and family and whoever else you think might enjoy this podcast. Yeah. Also, if you are interested in being one of our proud professionals, make sure to message us. We want to hear from everybody, from all walks of life, from all professions, from all categories. Please reach out to us. Yeah. We we want to hear from you. This was the main reason why we started this podcast was so that we could give others a platform. So please, if you have something you want to share, or if you're just regular Joe Schmo and you want to share that you're a queer Joe Schmo, we want that too. You don't have to be doing something. Being yourself is is enough. So yeah, we we want to tell stories here. Yeah, that's thank you. It for us. That's it. Please join us next time when we talk about being out in the workplace. Bye. Bye.